My name is Maeve Wang, and I am the co-founder and CEO of Iambic, and I beat the often path by having a really robust support system in place. Because when a path diverges from the norm, it often entails more challenges, which really demand more resilience, more adaptability to really overcome them. And I think that's why it becomes even more crucial to have more people who don't just believe in your mission or your product, but really believe in you um, and are ready to extend that helping hand when you need it. Even if they don't tread that path with you, they're kind of alongside you on the, on the sidewalk. And that's, that's how I do it. Ooh, yeah, I know you're going to love this episode. Maeve Wang is a Harvard graduate and the CEO of Iambic, a company that uses AI to make truly customized shoes that are tailored to your exact foot. Finding shoes that fit, it turns out, is a big problem for 27% of the population, and it affects a considerably larger percentage. It's not just about comfort and fashion, though. It's also about health and fundamental well-being with something that you wear all day and impacts us so, so, so much. She's innovated with a number of incredible advancements that I just can't wait to share with you. But beyond that, Maeve has a remarkable personal story and an unlikely career, and she left the corporate world to become a founder in what is really an inspirational tale. So without much further ado, here's Maeve Wang. I'm Ross Palmer, and this is Beat the Often Path. That's one of the most thoughtful and interesting uh, opening statements that we've had. I love that. That's one of the best, I've got to say. So good job, right out of the gate. I love <laughs> every piece of that. And we're talking about shoes, and my knowledge of shoes is very ignorant. It's one of those things that I know that is very popular in the world. I know that a lot of people care very deeply about this. I know that it's a status thing. I know that it's a culture thing. I also know that it's something that I know nothing about. I'm a person who wears one pair of shoes until they fall apart. They're covered in mud. I've never made a kind of purchase like that for status or anything like that. So when I see things like Air Jordans or Little Nas X soaked a pair of shoes in blood and is selling it, it's like a limited edition drop. It's just like a distant, distant thing to me. So how did you get involved in the shoe space, knowing that there are so many major massive players in there like Nike and Adidas and all of these other people? What made you think there's something in here for me to do? Yeah, well, I think like many founders out there, Iambic really started off as a solution to what was originally a personal challenge. Okay. And I was just someone who really struggled to find shoes that fit. Um, and to be clear, I did not start off as the most fashionable girl in New York City. Um, I call myself the unlikely fashion founder because <laughs> of all of my friends, I was the least likely to go into fashion <laughs> or footwear at nice. all. Um, and I really struggled to find something basic that fits. I have really common kind of fit profiles where it's a slightly narrower heel and a slightly wider forefoot. But when you combine them, it makes finding shoes really hard because then you have really tight toe boxes or you, you have severe heel slippage. And I was just looking for something that was simple, you know, chic, uh, meaning didn't look like a clown shoe um, that could get me you know, to the office, home on the weekends, something pretty basic. And I went through about 300 returns and exchanges within a three-year period. 
Get out um, of here. And I actually hadn't tracked these until I turned 30 and was literally just like taking stock of my whole life and realizing that many of my refunds hadn't been completed. And I was like, wait a second, I'm tracking all of these returns from like literally hundreds of brands, many of whom did not have their return systems fully in place, it seems. Um, and I was like, I think this is a lot. And it was 300. And I was like, there's something off here. And that was both combination of online and in person. I had my boyfriend drive me to deep Jersey, upstate, uh, Connecticut, just to go to the more, most specialty shoe stores with the fanciest foot scanners um, that had like literally the most advanced gait analysis systems, just trying to find something basic that fit. And everything came up empty handed. And at the time, I was a you know, former Bain consultant, started off in retail strategy, customer experience innovation. Um, and I had been in investing and developing technologies in consumer wearables, data analytics, and digital content. And my approach to it was through that lens, more of a B2B data analytics lens. And the original hypothesis was that footwear fit is a data matching issue. If we could get hmm. sufficient high resolution data from a broadly available consumer grade device, i.e. a smartphone, and if we could get high resolution product data by working directly with the brands and retailers, then we could utilize a combination of 3D modeling and material science to match the two. So I spoke to, and that took a while to arrive at, I spoke to over 200 people and 50 industry experts um, around the globe, including the number one foot and footwear researcher in the world who's based in Melbourne, Australia. And I was introduced to my co-founder and CTO, Raza Hassan. And he came from this incredible background, orthopedics research, 3D modeling, computational biomechanics, just so impressive, but also just so like enthusiastic about what this problem was because it was a way of bridging his research experience with people's everyday lives. And then we kicked off Iambic as this B2B foot scanner. So we did not start off okay. as a sneaker brand at all. Wow. And again, this was a bunch of people who were thinking about this through really the lens of digital health. Um, and we got this incredible National Science Foundation government grant to build our foot scanner, our fit prediction tool. Um, we, we were incorporated January 2020. Raza and I started working the day Governor Cuomo shut down New York State because of COVID. Um, built out our team, including that top foot researcher in the world over the coming months. By 2021, we are so excited. We are testing this out with incredible folks in sneakers, hiking shoes, dress shoes. And we discover that lo and behold, footwear fit is not a data matching issue. It is fundamentally a design and manufacturing issue. Wow. That, it, that a lot of the data that was used to design shoes was not actually foot data that represented the U.S. population. A lot of that data that had been utilized was from like the 1950s. And it was error propagation where that data was kind of warped and informed shoe molds that then informed later shoe molds that then informed the shoe molds that we use today. And then not only that, but there's air exacerbation because the shoes that are built on top of those molds in this global fragmented, highly antiquated supply chain aren't consistent. 
So they're poor fit, that's inconsistent. And ultimately, what it means is that today, shoes are really optimized to fit only 33% of the population. They exclude 27% of people who have non-standard foot shapes. Um, and they leave everyone else in between. And for that 20%, it's not people with like foot problems. It's just people who maybe struggle to find shoes that fit really well and feel forced to just to choose between dad shoes or clown shoes and shoes that look good but feel bad. And a common refrain that we heard just talking with everyday people was that shoes really impacted like personal confidence and quality of life. And that sometimes people would literally avoid going to certain events or places because they were embarrassed of their shoes. And they would rather stay home than be in pain. And that was not uncommon. So it's not like people who have certain conditions, like they fall within that 27%, but this is just everyday people who were really uncomfortable because of this outdated, antiquated sizing standard in the industry. Um, and so we realized that if we wanted to stay true to our mission of getting people shoes that are their best fit, that we might have to do it ourselves. We might have to start at that most individual level and we might have to build our own system from the ground up. And so late 2021, it was a really scary decision for us to become a consumer shoe brand, AI-driven custom fit shoes, um, because you know what did we know as a digital health team going out there in this incredibly crowded market of like really hip shoe brands? And we're not competing on hipness per se. We hope that what we're you know, what we're building is incredibly exciting that people will like. But we were like, this is actually, we see it as a new shoe category that's emerging um, given the new technologies around AI and streamlined manufacturing that are in place. And that's really where we're competing in this emerging shoe category. We're not trying to compete with all of the limited drops from all of these other amazing, incredible brands, whom hopefully we'll be able to work closely with in the future, because we had we started off B two B. We started off, you know, focusing on industry partnerships. No one shoe brand can solve these issues and improve shoe fit for as many people as possible. And so, ultimately, we don't see ourselves as competitive. We see ourselves as just creating a new space for the people who don't aren't being served by the industry today. And uh, so that's well, kind of how we got into shoes. <laughs> what a fascinating story. It reminds me a lot of the Sarah Blakely story, whom I'm sure you're familiar with, about how yeah. she found that a lot of these garments were just manufactured by men, also from models from the 50s or mannequins from the 50s. And like, hey, you yeah. want a small, you want a medium, you want a large, yeah, it's good. You know, she said, have you tested this on anybody? Does anybody actually sign off on this? And so you found a similar path and you've tapped into a similar vein, it seems like, as, as well, what she did. Actually, you touch on a really interesting point around feedback, because that was something that we really discovered was lacking in the footwear industry, too, because it's really challenging to get high, like really detailed feedback on shoes that fit, because fit in a shoe inherently changes as the, sh the materials stretch or warp over time. That's just the nature of the product. So when we were going in and designing our shoe, we had that in mind. We were like, if we're gonna design our own shoe from the ground up, why not actually turn it into this ongoing tool for 
feedback that can then improve the product for that individual and for everyone else thereafter. So um, I'm not sure if you'll, you know, not all of your listeners will be able to see the shoe Ooh, unless they're on YouTube. We got YouTube, a visual on the screen, yeah. This is our sneaker. Um, and every feature here is designed with functionality in mind from the really clean upper. We describe it as business on the top, party on the bottom. <laughs> um, and what you see has this, these ridges here. So you'll see these ridges with this like layer of red peeking out in between them. We call it our sole print design. Think about it like your fingerprint. And you know how, have you ever looked at your shoes and seen how they wear out more or less? between your right or left foot or on the inner heel or the outer heel. I Sometimes. haven't, but I am the most ignorant and oblivious person you'll ever talk to. So yeah, probably I should you, have. If you have a chance, you might see how they don't wear out perfectly. And okay. that's because everyone has their own unique alignment, balance, and gates based on their personal foot strike or walking patterns. And so shoes are naturally this incredible data collection tool about how you walk. But oftentimes all of that data is lost when you chalk your shoes. So we designed it so that these ridges actually serve as wear bars where they're Ooh. wearing out differently over time and reveal a layer of red. That red isn't just painted on. It's actually a full layer of red underneath this white layer here, almost like a heat map. So when people are what? done with their iambics, they have the option of, actually taking pictures of their iambics, different facets of them, sending them to us along with their feedback so that we can improve their next pair. And we're going to call that program, which we're going to be rolling out probably in a year and a half to um, our evolutionary shoe program, the shoe that evolves with you. So think of it almost like a big fuzzy wearable that is okay. so smart it self-improves and doesn't require sensor hardware. So That's wild. Um, yeah, what a wild yeah. concept. We, it's it's a really unique way of getting feedback on how shoes fit and feel over time, which no one else right now is getting in the industry because there's no way to standardize that unless you have certain certain design elements in place, but also the right AI models and the right talent and the right operational model to make it happen. So this what you see here is it looks like a tire tread, but it's actually a stylized grid. We were initially thinking about having this look a little bit more like graph paper, like an actual grid, but we realized that it might be a little bit too nerdy. <laughs> so um, that's why we decided to take more elements uh, that could draw inspiration from, from the real world. And that's what we're so excited about. Yeah. Uh, well, I have a bit of advice. If you're looking for tire treads, do not put rubber in a sealed room in a waffle iron. Bill Bowerman of Nike did that, and it caused him permanent brain damage. <laughs> so yes, don't. Yes, Do not. Noted. Make sure. Noted. That's one way to get the waffle pattern on the shoe, right? Um, it's, it's an incredible concept that you've come up with, and it's just absolutely wild. And I assume that with AI, if the picture, all of that can automatically happen, right? Somebody sends the right facets of the shoe, and... AI can automatically determine and then create that. So that's a fully automated process. Yes. Yes. Wow. And what we're Absurd. doing is um, what's really powerful is also just the support that we have behind us, not only with the world-class talent, but also with continued support from the National Science Foundation through our government grant. 
Um, because our goal isn't just become the, you know, a generation defining shoe brand and people's everyday go-to. We want to take our really data-driven approach to help improve how shoes are designed and manufactured long-term. So a lot of the feedback and data we want to collect, we hope to be able to help other brands and help other creatives um, leverage those insights to improve how they're making their shoes too um, in the future. That way, it's not just for us and our customers, but that way we can actually expand our influence in the industry in a really meaningful way. So, yeah. That seems almost like a foregone conclusion at this point. Of course they would want that technology. Who wouldn't, right? All of the big brands. It's such an easy thing to to latch onto, in my opinion. Well, because we started B2B, we actually have a much deeper understanding of how these supply chains are structured. And given all of the different stakeholders who are involved in getting the concept of a shoe from a draft of a, of a drawing to final physical product, we calculated that at this point in time, it could take a company up to 10 years to implement a fit prediction tool like our original foot scanner to really improve the final physical product given all the integrations that are necessary with all the stakeholders in place. But it could take that time to actually implement a true supply chain that could um, that could deliver this type of product. And so that's why we hope to actually first really establish ourselves as our own standalone brand with our own standalone operations um, in manufacturing supply chain before being able to lend like a much larger helping hand to other brands um, because we know that it would require a little bit of seeding control of how they currently do things um, with all of their suppliers and contract manufacturers. So it's it's really tough to actually implement something like this today without having more infrastructure already established that we can lend. So anyways, didn't mean to get into that no, depth, it's, it's, but... It's, it's incredibly fascinating. And I think what a lot of people think about raising money for a project, you mentioned a government grant. In my experience, that is not an avenue that most people feel that they can turn to who are looking for sources of funding, turning obviously to venture capital or to a bank um, or to just debt. So how did you realize that maybe this was something we could get a government grant for? And what types of projects or concepts are good candidates for those types of grants? Yeah. So um, there's this program called the Small Business Innovation Research Program, SBIR. And many government agencies allocate a certain percentage of their annual budgets for this type of grant. And each agency administers them differently and has different criteria in place. We went with the National Science Foundation because for the National Science Foundation, they want to back technologies that have a high degree of technical risk, but also a high degree of a high opportunity to impact for societal impact, but also really strong like economic opportunity, market opportunity. Um, and we wanted to go with the government grant because Footwear Fit is a really underappreciated challenge 
given like people are like, oh, you just improve it by, you know, adjusting the mold for a lot based on a lot of foot data. No, that's actually not how it works. This is actually a mobility device. There's a lot more that's involved beyond just adjusting the shape or even adjusting the construction. It requires, again, that closed data feedback loop, getting that feedback over time from many individuals before applying them and scaling that to, uh, you know, improving an entire sizing standard. So we want to go with NSF because they help de-risk the technology so that once you do approach other sources of capital or other resources, it's already in a really good place um, to start impacting, to creating that societal impact, to start generating those revenues that, that one would expect. Yeah. Um, also at the time, I think that it was really important for me to establish credibility around developing this technology. With the National Science Foundation, you are required to submit first a project pitch before being invited to submit a full proposal. I submitted our project pitch, like I think like December 2019. When I look back at it, I'm like, wow, this is so amateur. And I'm just so grateful that they gave me this opportunity to just submit a full proposal. I, and I, that was, I highly doubt that, you did anything that was that amateur. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate um, the we, modesty and humility, but... I have my own personal doubts on that point. <laughs> but but that 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 be the opportunity to apply for the National Science Foundation grant was actually how I built my team with the top experts in the world, with Raz on board and many other folks who came and brought material science, um, data analytics, physical therapy experience. It's because they saw, wow, you're actually looking to build a legitimate like new technology that's really ambitious and really exciting. That was actually how I was able to really bring on board such incredible people, my team. So by the time we submitted our application, which is a lot of work, and I don't think I knew how hard it would be until I was really deep in it. Um, but I was like, whether or not we get it, it really helped get build our company, the foundation of it. And I was just really just so grateful for that, what it, how it contributed to Iambic's like earliest stages. So for me, it was a source of credibility to bring on board like world-class talent. Um, and also understanding that there are a lot of quote unquote tech companies out there, but what many of them do is they take existing technologies and they might have like a new application or they might operationalize it in a way that is um, more effective than the next person. Um, and that's how they go out there as a tech company. Companies that are actually developing new technologies called like deep tech companies, there's a lot more R&D and there's a lot more work involved. And so it attracts world-class talent that are ambitious about building new things, but it also very quickly weeds out people who are not ambitious and are scared of, you know, taking on really big challenges um, with like a bit of a, a riskier outlook. So it helped me kind of weed out very quickly those who are in our corner and those who are not. Um, wow. So that was also really powerful from like a manufacturing supply chain perspective. And that ties into the support network thing that you gave at the yeah. very beginning of all of this. Yeah. So give us a quick one minute rundown of as the tech stands today. I order a pair of shoes. What is the process that happens from my perspective? What's the process that happens on the back end? Just describe how that goes down for me, the customer. Yeah. So right now, what we have is the executive experience. And we're starting off with limited edition, um, small batch white glove service. 
And with the executive experience, people have two options. They have the option of coming on site into our workshop right by Columbus Circle if they happen to be in the New York metro area. Or they have the option of going through the virtual consultation, which is our forthcoming web app. On site, we actually scan them with our, the NASA, a NASA scanner called the Artex Space Spider. And this is actually the scanner that we built our smartphone scanner off of. So it's an opportunity to actually walk people through what's happening under the hood, not just what's happening for their shoe, but how the technology was built. Um, and so as part of that process, there's also this full conversation as part of the consultation where we learn more about what comfort means to you and your history with shoes. When shoes fit, why don't they fit? When they feel good, why do they feel good? Um, what do you want your iambics to feel like and why? And the reason we want to start with that is because we discovered there's a lot of consumer education that's involved. Sometimes people might say, oh, I like a lot of cushioning. And we're like, okay, why? We're like, oh, because I want like a lot of extra support. And we're like, okay, tell us more. And maybe they might say something along the lines of, I walk along cobblestone streets downtown a lot. And I just, you know, I, I twist my ankle a lot. There's a lot of instability. And we're like, actually, if that's your problem, stability really means that you need a less cushioned shoe with a slightly wider platform without looking clown-like, of course, so that you have that true stability so that you're not twisting your ankles or tripping or falling or hurting yourself. So there's this dialogue that we discovered is so rich where a lot of the people step away, they're like, wow, I was there was a lot of education involved there. And I just, my eyes are now open to how nuanced shoe fit actually is. So um, if we don't understand people's comfort preferences, it doesn't matter whether or not we um, adapt the shoe mold or the shoe to their foot geometry. We found that we could be off by the equivalent of two whole sizes. Even though we're a sizeless shoe, just the equivalent of that to give people a sense of that order of magnitude, if we don't understand whether or not they prefer it to be a little bit snugger or a little bit looser in certain parts, that's how important your preferences are. In the virtual consultation, we get the foot scans through in three image scan of each foot. You take pictures of the top foot, the inner foot, and the outer foot. And then you also answer a survey. Um, with the executive experience, we're also going to be opening up video calls as part of that process so that we can still infuse that more white glove element in that dialogue that we found is so valuable, which people, you know, people come inside and they're like, yeah, this is going to be 15 minutes. How hard can this be? And we're like, actually, it's a little bit more than that. And they leave um, saying, my life is dedicated to been, shoes now. <laughs> it's yeah, all been a lie. Yeah, my life has been changed. Or like, <laughs> yeah. I'll never look at my shoes the same way. We, we get that actually quite a, a lot. We didn't expect that. Um, but as part of the executive experience, people will also receive what we call the pilot shoe. And so this is a trial shoe where they can either come back on site or we can ship it to them. And they can actually draw on these shoes or tell us where it can be dialed in if it's not absolutely perfect or if it is perfect why the reason for that is because understanding why something works and why something does not work is just as important as as like knowing whether or not it does because that really helps us train our algorithms and really understand you better because our goal isn't just to get you a really great shoe it's to help us improve this shoe for you every time you come back because we hope that you keep coming back. And then your final shoe is delivered. Um, we're actually going to be rolling out 
we we sold out um as i was sharing earlier with you we we sold out of our executive experience um without any paid advertising it was it was all organic we're just so grateful within two weeks of of turning on um, our executive early access and we realized that there are a lot more people out there who want to be who want to try their iambics um, because of our white glove service, it's so important for us to really allocate a lot of those resources and that time for them. What we were initially going to roll out next year in a simplified model with a slightly more simplified shoe and experience without that pilot, without the white glove per se, we're going to be opening up wait lists for that this summer a little bit earlier just because of just the warm reception that we've received. And, and we're just so grateful for that for that enthusiasm. So we want to kind of build on that momentum and let people know, hey, just because you weren't able to receive, you know, the equivalent of our roadster, so to speak, and if we're looking at like a Tesla analogy, um, the Model S might be coming really soon, um, which is going to be different, but still leverages our technologies in a way where if you're not based in the tri-state area or if the white glove uh, aspect is not something you could have gotten your hands on or something that you uh, are excited about this could be a good option for you that's coming in the future. So well, that's kind I of could... how it works right now. That's how it might work more in the future. But I don't want to share too much more because uh, it's a surprise. <laughs> well, could you just let me personally know when you unveil the assistant to the regional manager experience? That's probably the one that's better suited to me. <laughs> when you're ready for that experience, let me know. Uh, and hopefully it involves meeting somebody behind a garbage can <laughs> here at McDonald's. Um, no, this, what an, a remarkable story. You're clearly a very unusual person, and I mean that in the best possible way. I mean, you, you we're talking Harvard, and you, you had this career, yet you've taken a huge change in your career. So let's look a little bit personal now. How have you felt, did, did you feel that you were always entrepreneurial at heart? You said you were the least likely person to be in the fashion brand, but have you always been that kind of proactive? Have you always thought in those ways or is that really something that started with this? I think growing up, I, it'd probably be better to ask of my childhood friends or close friends this question, but I, I think that I was always on my own timeline and I did things kind of my own way. Um, Maybe not in the loudest way, but uh, during college, for example, I mean, sometimes people say, oh, you know, I'm a government major too. And I was like, ah, well, I actually became a government major because I took a lot of classes that were about different regions in the world so that I could actually apply for incredible fellowships and opportunities to travel there. And they just happened to all fall within the government department. (laughs) So my reasons for majoring were really slightly different. Um, and after college, for me, I started off my career as a bank consultant, you know, as, as you described. And I think management consulting is this incredible harbor for people for indecision. It's people who don't okay. necessarily <laughs> want to commit to anything, but also don't want to close any doors. So, I mean, I think it's the reality of it. Most people who are consultants admit that. But it's really hard for indecision. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the reason I went to Bain, though, was not because I was... It was a harbor for indecision for me, but it was because I was given an opportunity by a partner there to pursue a two-year project in Vietnam and have Bain wait for me when I got to New York. 
So okay. for me, my reason for going to Bain was because I could actually go and travel, do my own thing, and then come back and still have a job kind of lined up for me. And, and did you do that? You you I went did. to Vietnam for two years? Incredible. Incredible. Yeah. And wow. I'm just so grateful for the opportunity to meet that partner, you know, at that cell dinner who really believed again in just me and that project and the vision that I had in um, it, it's a, it's very different from what I do today, but it was really meaningful to her and to me. And she was like, you know what, Maeve, Bane is waiting, willing to wait for you. We don't do, do this for everyone, but I really hope you're, you find what you're looking for. So that was why I ended up actually going to Bane. <laughs> and Bane was offer. just also like, it wasn't, it was the most incredible offer. And, and, and you can't, you can't ask for that. You can't look for that. You can't expect that. Sometimes oh, the universe course. just is out there and willing to go out on a limb to, to let you do your own thing. Um, so when I started off at Bain in New York, it was a bit of an adjustment because when you're running your own life in Southeast Asia and doing something that you love personally day in, day out, and then you are part of this incredible global brand where you're working with Fortune 500 companies and you don't really work for your company, you work for their client. And so there's like another level of commitment that's involved. Right. But I actually really loved the work. I, I thought it was just so intellectually stimulating and so fascinating. The problem that I had with it was not the work itself. It was the level of ownership that I had in it. Because I, I loved it so much that I wanted to talk to people about it. I was like, wow, I'm working for this incredible large company you've probably heard of. And they're doing this big, cool project. And I think it's going incredibly well. And I'm, and I'm so excited about my role in it. But of course, as a consultant, your work isn't your own. But you're also like, you're not allowed to disclose what you do. So I felt almost like, I didn't want to say like suffocated, but... I, I was just really kind of dying to do a little bit more where I could get my hands dirty and where I could also just share my work with the world. Um, and then I had this incredible offer to help run the Delos Ventures team um, for, you know, as my next role where we led a product development and investments in such cool emerging technologies in the health and wellness space. And I loved that. Um, and I actually thought I could have stayed there for years I was like, this is where I, I get incredible support from the COO and the CEO and in working on some of their most exciting projects and connecting with the investors on XYZ. At the same time, I think that I had a lot of, I had visions for the work that I was doing internally and I was just dying to get more resources to really help them reach their full potential. And it was a close, you know, it was a, an advisor to the CEO whom I met who became a really close friend of mine, um, who was like, Maeve, have you considered becoming your own entrepreneur? You know, like, have you considered founding your own thing? Like, you might have potential here. And I was like, that sounds really scary. You know, yeah. I don't have an, an extra job waiting for me in two right. years, just lined Leave up, that right? security like, behind. Is, yeah. yeah right? who, needs, who needs a paycheck? <laughs> Right. It's, just, so, it's just money in New York City. Right, right. And but I think it got to a point where I was like, you know what, maybe you're right. And 
I had a lot of other people in my life who were like, Maeve, we always saw this coming. And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> They're like, yeah, we always knew you'd go the founder route. I was like, I don't actually know what that means. I mean, even at Bain, I recall some of my later projects, people saying, you know what, what Maeve, have, are, have you ever considered being a founder of some sort or an entrepreneur? I had no idea what they were talking about, genuinely. Um, and I think it was just kind of this scrappier mentality of trying to push for things that not everyone else immediately sees um, that a lot of people in my life began to recognize and began to support me in. So when I became a founder, it wasn't just because like I wanted to do something. It was because I had all these people who were backing me in just really deep, meaningful ways. So yeah, that's kind of how I, my entrepreneur, you know, I had this journey. So there's some incredible people who go out there and like, hey, I always knew I wanted to be a founder. I went out to Silicon Valley, got this cool tech experience, and then bam, right. started my own thing. No, it, it took me a few steps to get there. And it took a lot of people, you know, just a lot of people encouraging me, but uh, it's just made for the most fulfilling experience. Um, like some people say entrepreneurship is can be a really lonely journey. But for me, I've never felt that way because it all, for me, it was always about the people around me who, who encouraged me and supported me, even when things got like really hard. You know, when you're pivoting from B2B software to consumer brand, it's, there are degrees of pivot. This is pretty dramatic. This is kind That's of as dramatic, dramatic. as it gets. Yeah. And, uh, but I was able to do it and we're still standing, you know, pun unintended, um, because of talent. So for example, that advisor who, who was at, at Delos, whom I met, he was one of the people who came on board to Iambic and helped us in this pivot. Um, his name was Tyson and he was like, Maeve, I think you really have something here. I think that your vision for footwear, this is something that even more people can get behind. And he was one of the people who helped us set up our whole supply chain, helped us onboard Coleman Horn, an industrial design legend whose career literally inspired a Cameron Crowe film where he was played by Orlando Bloom, where he was, he coached Alec Baldwin on how to play Phil Knight. This is in the early aughts to just put things in context. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like incredible talent. He was able to help us also kind of augment our initial B2B digital health team and become like a real brand. Um, he passed away a bit suddenly though last year. Um, and sorry. it was, it was, thank you. But he, he was just such a big, he played such a big role in my journey as an entrepreneur and such a big role in where I am big is today that it's always hard talking about him, but there's no, you can't avoid him and his role in our story. So in our next model um, of shoe, we're actually naming it the Model T uh, in his memory, because he was actually the one who really set our, our Tesla-inspired rollout strategy because he just <laughs> loved cars. Um, I know the Model T is Ford, but for, for us, it's really about Tyson and this notion of democratizing yeah. luxury um, and giving people access to something that they never even considered could be possible before. And so that's why we're excited for our next release um, and a few other things that are coming out that will be dedicated to him too. Well, the story is all the richer for it. So I think that's a wonderful idea. 
And I think you mentioned that it, it is a huge pivot for a lot of people, but I understand, and that's sort of why I do this show, but I'm a very weird individual. <laughs> I'm not most people, but to me, it makes a lot of sense. And I work in a sim- I have my own company, so I'm halfway between the entrepreneur because I have a digital marketing agency and I serve clients. So yes, it is my own company, and in that sense, I'm an entrepreneur, but I also work for a variety of different clients, which means furthering their projects and taking on their interests and taking on their problems as my problem, right? And the more of them there are, the more problems and things that I have to think about. And, and it's an interesting in-between of both of those worlds. And I certainly have felt in my life Sometimes I think, uh, would it be simpler instead of trying to build all of these separate brands to have one brand that is my brand and to build all of it for myself? So I get that doing consulting can lead to the thought of maybe I could, maybe I should do something that is more my own endeavor. Uh, but I don't have a brilliant idea <laughs> like you have. I don't have something that's like so obvious that I'm just going to go after it. Um, what what advice do you have for somebody like me who, I mean, would you stay, would it have been different if you were the owner of Bain, so to speak, if you were the CEO of that versus an employee in another company? Or is there a fundamental difference between serving clients and building your own thing? I think that at the end of the day, any business has to serve a customer, whether it be client through professional services or, you know, the, the end user of your product. Um, for me, I guess like there are different ways to unpack that question. It's really about having the freedom to do something that, you're excited about every day you wake up and the level of like kind of the degree of fulfillment that you have in how, like the impact that you're creating. So for a lot of the partners at Bain, like they are really changing the world by helping these fortune 500s who impact millions of people, right? Change their operations, you know, improve their product, what have you. For me, it, at this stage in my career, in my life, it's about improving something that people use every day they step out their front doors. And that's something that gets me really excited to wake up every morning and do what I do and bring that level of energy, even when things get really challenging. Um, and so it's really just about where you derive that that kind of status, that daily satisfaction, that sense of like deeper fulfillment from, um, in serving others, um, however you do it. So, you know, if you're excited about it, that's what really matters, right? Like, I don't really think that entrepreneurship is for everybody and I actually would not encourage it for most people. Um, you you know right like you're you're you have your own business yeah. it's hard when you are you, when you're responsible for payroll and when yeah. conversations that you have that might seem initially casual but might actually be like game changing for your company just take <laughs> on so like higher stakes yes. right like that level of pressure is not something that I would like recommend for most people Mm-mm. and it's not something no. that most people need in their lives no absolutely not so I don't know if that path is for everybody. 
Um, but what's most important is just how people feel about it and just making sure that at the end of the day, they can still put food on the table for them and, and their families. And, and yeah, that's it. Go to sleep feeling good about it. <laughs> Yeah, and as you know, and everybody knows, it uh, it changes. And some days you can feel really good about it. Other days you say, "What am I doing? What is this?" Uh, the amount of pressure is very real, and the amount of stress is insane. Um, and sometimes true. when people ask me or they say, "I want to start a business," and sometimes I just laugh. I think, "Oh my god, you have no idea!" If you really want to do it, if you want to sell a few things on Etsy or make a, a little side money. Anybody can do that with very low stress, but even replacing a full-time job with an entrepreneurial yeah. endeavor, that ratchets things up to an incredible degree of potential stress. I, I think that when people talk to me about entrepreneurship, a lot of it is, are they going in with their eyes open? And... One of the things that I did before becoming my own founder was really have a deeper understanding of how hard it would be. And, and that was, and I still didn't fully grasp it at the time, but I knew that it would be a huge, it would be a slog and it would not be glamorous at all. And that it would just be really challenged. It would be really challenging. And it was because I paid really close attention to the leadership, senior leadership of Delos, which at the time was transitioning from early stage to mid-stage and now late stage startup tech company. And just seeing how challenging it was at certain stages um, to keep the business going, to keep morale high. Um, so when I went into it, I was like, I'm going into this because I think I can make a deeper impact and feel even more satisfied with things I'm doing every day. Not because of how I can make a name for myself, not because of how glamorous it might be, not because of the, the cool, amazing people I might meet. Um, like there's a chance none of that will come and there's a chance that all of this will fail and that's okay because I'm, I'm okay with taking that risk. For a lot of other people where if they're asking certain questions like, what's work-life balance? Like, how do you achieve that? And I'm like, oh, oh. Oh, sweetie. No, I, I don't think yeah. this is for you. <laughs> I think you're asking right. some of the wrong questions. <laughs> right. um, yeah. If they're asking questions like, how are you dealing with mental health? And I'm like, okay, then you have a slightly deeper understanding of maybe the yeah. realities of what this is looking like. But very few people actually ask me that question. Like, how are you dealing with, how right. do you take care of yourself? How are you dealing with mental health <laughs> given the challenges? Um yeah. So some, it really depends on the expectations and understanding that people go into and what they're looking for coming out of entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. That impacts how I just talk to them too. Yeah. Yep. Completely agree. And I think a lot of people know the stress of worrying about whether you can pay your own rent or mortgage, whether you can take care of your family. That's a very real stress that most people understand. But then if you say, okay, now imagine that you're responsible for that plus that for 8, 9, 10, 20, 30 other people. I have about nine people in my team. So it's not just my rent. It's all of their rent that I'm trying to figure out, right? Yeah. And it's each new person, each new supplier, each new vendor, it's just that is something else that you are responsible for. And it just it, it becomes quite large quite fast. Um, yeah. 
you know, we're, we're approaching the end of, of our time here. And one of the things that I am very impressed by what you seem to have done from afar is I think there are a lot of things, people who consider themselves as potential entrepreneurs or what some might negatively say, entrepreneurs, there are a lot of things that people know that they could be doing in general. Even if it's getting a job, they say, if I submitted 40 resumes a day, I'd probably get a better job. But a lot of people don't necessarily have the discipline to go out and do those things, even if some part of them says this is something that you should be doing. Like, I have a new product. I should be knocking on every door, doing the Sarah Blakely thing. I should be going to every department store, trying to get it in there. A lot of people really struggle with that. But you returned 300 pairs of shoes, and you made all of these phone calls, and you went through this process of this enormously complex process. Have you ever struggled to get over that first hump of, I know I should call 200 people today, but I, I don't feel like it, or maybe tomorrow? And, and how, if that was something you struggled with, have you managed to not succumb to that? So I think... I think it's, if I can, if I understand your question, right, it's about like how you just get started kind of overcoming like those initial hurdles of maybe yeah. like self-doubt, right? How you, how you get that active, how you activation energy. Yes. I think for me going out there, doing all of this, because it started initially from a personal place of frustration and physical pain, um, I was really just genuinely curious about the topic and about it. At the same time, another facet of this is I was all, I've always been someone who's just like really excited and really passionate about things that I'm doing in my life. Um, whether that be a question I'm trying to answer personally or the work that I have at hand, my day job. Um, so that was not really challenging for me to bring that energy to the table but another facet of this is like, how are other people approaching it? So even before I became an entrepreneur, when people approached me about different career paths, they were like, okay, you started off at Bain, you went into corporate development, into venture. How did you do that? How did you decide to go into digital health, right? Prop tech. Um, and what I always encourage people to do was to say like, just put a stake in the ground. You might be interested in finance and real estate and retail, and you might be equally interested in all three, but in order to get anywhere, you have to put a stake in the ground and go for it, understanding that you can always pick it up and put it somewhere else. But you have to put a stake in the ground first and say, okay, I'm going to go all in on finance, right? Like I'm going to go talk to everyone in the industry. I'm going to really understand what my, my role is in there. This is like overly general and broad, just as high level example. Um, but what I found is that a lot of people really struggle with that piece of advice, yeah. just saying, going all that. in yeah. on one direction. And I've actually really how do you know it's the right direction? That. How do you know, how can you be sure that it's what you're meant to be doing? Right. And my point was, you won't know until you go down that road, at least to a certain degree, right? You don't have to fully commit, but like to a certain degree, you have to commit to really mm -hmm. understand, find your right role. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've actually really struggled to provide more helpful guidance because that was something that I felt very comfortable doing. 
my whole life, um, which I know is really, it can be really hard for others. But I think what's important is just to be able to say, you can always change your mind as well. You can say for one year, I'm going to go all in on finance. Next year, it's like, I actually didn't discover that finance might not yeah, be my thing, but I discovered I'm interested in real estate. Go all yeah. in on that. Go to every real estate conference that you can, you can attend. Talk to all the real estate people in your extended network, what have you. If they know that you're serious about it, and at that point in time, they will continue to open doors for you to keep learning more and to understand it more deeply to see if it's a deeper fit for yourself. But without being it, without saying that, no one's going to trust that you are actually serious about anything. And how are you going to get anywhere, mm. you know, yeah. within any reasonable period of time, right? right? So kind of just maybe just being like, be serious about one thing, knowing that you can also be serious about something else if that one thing doesn't turn out right. Right. So more so, in the time domain and less in the simultaneous domain. It's you yeah, know, sequential exactly. rather than all at once. Okay. Last thing, we managed to make it through an hour. So we did it. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. great. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, one last thing. So there are people, let's say that somebody has put a few stakes in the ground. Let's say that somebody followed that advice. So they put a stake in the ground for one year, didn't work out. They put another stake in the ground for a second year that didn't really work out. And they've put three stakes in the ground over three separate years. How can that person not feel like I'm just a failure? Nothing is going to work out for me. How can they feel like that's progress or a path towards success instead of nothing is meant for me? If someone were to truly go through that exercise of saying, all right, I went all in on one direction, didn't turn out right. Went all in in another direction, didn't turn out right. Went all in on a third direction, it didn't turn out like it was for me. I believe that they would probably learn a lot about themselves in that process and have a deeper understanding of what other paths or things would make them more satisfied. Because you're not just learning about these directions that you can take, you're really learning about what makes you happy, what keeps you engaged. Right. So I, I would, I would bet that that person out there, and I'm sure that person is out there, that they have stepped away from this exercise, knowing that there's probably a fourth path that might be even better suited for them mm -hmm. versus feeling defeated. Cause it's mm -hmm. really a process of self-discovery. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, I'm interested in retail. Why are you interested in retail? What about these roles did that you started really exploring more deeply appeal to you? What are the patterns that you're starting to see between those roles in retail and maybe those roles in finance, you know, that link together and you're like, okay, even though these industries might not be the right place, maybe it's the nature of that role that's really exciting to me. Mm. So I think it's all about self-discovery, self-understanding too. And if that is also part of the journey, I highly doubt that they would be demoralized at the end of that, that process. So Bravo. Yeah. Well said. You passed the test. You got the funding. <laughs> I hereby authorize Shark Tank to give you all the money. <laughs> you did it. You nailed it. Uh, thank you for a very thoughtful and enlightening discussion. Uh, I knew it was going to be fun coming into this, and it was. So I very much appreciate you sharing your thoughts and your wisdom and, most importantly, your time, which is, I'm sure, at this moment in your life, the most valuable thing. 
of all, and I'm sure you've got a boatload of other meetings to get to before your day and your week is closed. But just know that I really appreciate it. I hope that we can stay in touch. Um, and yeah, I just, I'll continue to admire and I, I look forward to learning more about how you progress. It just has that very exciting feeling to me of in one year, you're going to be somewhere vastly different. I don't know where, but it's it's going to be good. It's like Casper day one, <laughs> you know, something is brewing here and I'm excited to see what happens. Thank you. I really appreciate that and appreciate your enthusiasm for what we're doing at Iambic and also just my my personal story. And I just really appreciate you um, giving me this this time, this platform to share that with the world and your insightful questions. I'm a big fan of your, your podcast and uh, really incredible content, the conversations, the rich conversations you have with so many interesting people. So just like honored and thrilled to be one of those people oh. now too. Thank you. It's the, the honor and thrill is all mine. Um, and of course, let's get the plug in there. So what is the website soon to be revamped? I know people can't order the executive experience just yet, but where can they find you and support your work? Um, www.iambic.co. That's I-A-M-B-I-C dot C-O. And our socials. So we are Iambic. And that is across Instagram, that is across TikTok, Twitter, um, Facebook, I'm sure LinkedIn, I think as well. <laughs> so you, yeah, it's all oh, those okay. places. So if you go to our website and you sign up for our newsletter and check off what things you're interested in, um, you'll receive email updates. Or if you follow us on any of those, through any of those channels, you'll also get really exciting updates too about what not, what not just what we're doing as a team, but also um, some of the really cool insights that we're going to share about the industry. More coming soon. Yeah. Exciting. Well, again, thank you, Maeve. And again, really cool name. And uh, with that, the official podcast is over. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the Beat the Often Path podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the episodes we've shared, it would mean a great deal to me if you subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice or on YouTube. And of course, if you shared either the show itself or this particular episode with somebody who might want to hear it to help us grow the audience for the show, I would greatly, greatly appreciate it. So if you've been a passive listener all this time, I get it. I understand. There's no big deal with that. But it would really, really mean a lot to me if you'd leave a positive review and help me grow this show. So thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time.